bow with me? Father God, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ here to earth to save us. We thank you, Lord, that he is your love gift to us. And yet we find that when he began his public ministry in Jerusalem, his first major work was to shatter the complacency of, of sin and the irreverence that men, even religious men, had toward a holy God. Thank you, Father, that Jesus did not come to preach love alone, because that would never have saved us. We thank you that instead, his love is so great that he came to tell us the truth about our own sin, and to die for that sin, and that he even chastens us with a scourge made from cords of concern and love, so that we will keep sin from desecrating these temples of God, our bodies. Father, teach us through the Lord's example, how to have a burning zeal, a fervent zeal for the things of God, for his holiness, for your holiness, Father, because it is your will and and your desire for us to have righteous indignation about those things which demonstrate an irreverence towards you and about those activities and organizations and people, again, even religious people, who use your name for their own gain. Father, I pray that it would be said of us, each one of us, that the zeal of your house has eaten us up, as it was long ago said of the one who I pray we have surrendered our lives to, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that I would would just pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together and uh, make Christ alone be the one who is exalted in all that is said here this morning, for we pray in his name. Amen. All right, if you remember, we closed up our previous lesson by uh, seeing that Jesus and his six disciples, along with his mother, Mary, and his brethren, had traveled from Cana, where he had performed his first miracle of turning water into wine, to Capernaum, which would become the headquarters for his Galilean ministry. And we were told in John 2.12 that they continued there not many days. And the reason for their short stay in Capernaum was because it was nearing the time of Passover, and they needed to get to Jerusalem. So we move now into looking at verses 13 to 25 of John chapter 2. The title for today's lesson is Cleansing the Temple's Leaven. We'll look at three divisions for our study. We'll begin by looking at the temple's desecration and Christ's passion for reverence. Then we'll look at the temple's destruction, not its actual destruction, but the Lord's prophecy about the temple's destruction and Christ's power of resurrection. And we'll conclude, Lord willing, if we have enough time. This really should have been a two-part study, but I'm going to try to cram it into one morning session, so bear with me. Uh, We'll try to look at the uh, temporary disciples and Christ's perception of reality. If we don't get that far, I, I will beg of you to read the notes carefully at home on that section, which I hope you do anyway. Let's begin by looking at verses 13 to 17, the temple's desecration and Christ's passion for reverence. Verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Of course, remember, he's in Galilee in the north, and Jerusalem's in the south in Judea. So you'd say, why is he going up? Because he's really, directionally, he's going south. He's going down. But anywhere you go in Israel, if you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up because Jerusalem's set up on a hill. So that's why it says he went up, or they went up. To Jerusalem. And verse 14 says, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. 
And when he, speaking of Jesus, had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. We'll stop right there for now. Okay, we have talked about in the past that every Jewish male, the age of 12 years and above, was required to go to Jerusalem every year to attend the Passover feast, which was held on the 14th day of Nisan, which was during the March-April full moon, according to Leviticus 23.5. Passover, of course, was a God-commended commemoration of Israel's exodus from Egypt, and more specifically, it was a commemoration of the passing of the angel of death over the homes where lamb's blood had been um, applied to the two side posts of the door of their homes, and then on the upper door post, which was called the lintel, forming a type of a blood-splattered cross. Of course, that whole thing is a type or a prophetic picture in advance of the Lord's death, the Lamb of God, when he would shed his blood, and those who, of us who believe on his death and his shed blood, we come under the blood, and therefore the angel of death passes over us, speaking, of course, of the second death. Passover was immediately followed by another celebration which uh, lasted seven days a week. It was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It went from the 15th of Nisan to the 21st of Nisan. And then there was even immediately following that, there was another feast. It was known as the Feast of First Fruits. And if you've never done a study on the feasts of Israel and how they correspond to the gospel and all the main events of the life of Christ, including his first coming and his second coming, it's worth your study. We'll probably get into it as we go through these different feasts, but uh, for now I'll just say that there were three feasts that went on during the spring season. And um, so Jews from all over the diaspora, speaking of, the diaspora is a, a word for, just think of dispersion. You know, the Jews were, they didn't all live in Israel. They had been dispersed to all of the countries, the Gentile countries around, um, far and wide. And that's known as the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. So Jews from all over had to come into Jerusalem to the temple to celebrate the Passover. It's estimated that at the time of Christ, the amount of Jews who would come to and, and Gentile proselytes to Judaism as well, they would also come to celebrate the Passover and these other feasts in Jerusalem. It's estimated that there would be at least two and a half million people in Jerusalem during the time of these springtime celebrations. That's a lot of people in that one little city. The Passover was, of course, a very busy time for Jewish families because, among other preparations, their homes were subjected to a vigorous spring cleaning. Anyway, they had to do this meticulous spring cleaning in order to remove even the slightest trace of leaven. Now, what is leaven, ladies? Yeast. They had to remove all the yeast from their homes. We've talked about the fact that in Scripture, leaven symbolizes sin. We heard Jesus uh, in one of our previous lessons, we, we mentioned that he spoke about beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, beware of the leaven of Herod, you know, the Herodians. Leaven symbolizes sin in the scripture. In Exodus twelve fifteen, God, through Moses, commanded 
his people, Israel. He said, ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. So this was a mandatory spring cleaning. They had to make sure that every little scrap of leaven was out of their homes. But the irony of the situation in first century Israel was that although everybody was busily and rigorously cleaning their own homes of all bits and pieces of leaven, no one seemed to give a thought about cleansing the house of God. And I, you know, I sometimes have a problem with that about, now this church is absolutely gorgeous. It's, it's new and it's clean. But a lot of times we clean our own little homes and we go to our churches and they're a mess. <laughs> we should have a spring cleaning at some of our churches too. But anyway, no one seemed to care. And of course here I'm speaking really spiritually or symbolically. No one seemed to care or be concerned about removing the leaven of sin or corruption which had accumulated in the temple over the passing decades. In fact, the condition of the entire Judaistic system had become so degenerate and so spiritually empty, remember that was pictured for us by those empty clay water pots, and so void of joy, remember the wedding party had run out of wine, that John, the apostle, repeatedly refers in his gospel account to the various feasts that were celebrated by the Jews as the Jews' feasts. And we see that in uh, verse 13 here. It doesn't say God's Passover, the Lord's Passover. It says the Jews' Passover. It was no longer God's Passover. It had become a mechanical tradition and custom uh, among the people there. It was something they just went through sort of ritualistically, you know, out of tradition, without being spiritually affected by the meaning of it all. And do we have that tendency today, even within the churches? Yes, we do. I mean, we go through Christmas, we go through Easter, which really I like, I prefer to call Resurrection Day. We go through those holidays, so many people do, and we have to battle with this, not to just go through them traditionally and without the spiritual significance and, and letting it really affect our hearts. But that's what was happening here. Wouldn't you hate for God to look down on America and say, that's the American Americans' Christmas? Well, it pretty much is, isn't it? That's probably what he is saying. And that's what he said. It was the Jews' Passover. The temple itself. Now, of course, we need to talk about the temple because that's where the Lord does this cleansing. The temple was the center of Judaism. And uh, it consisted, the temple consisted of three main sections. There was the outer court. And this picture here is not the best. I'll show you a little bit later another picture which shows the outer court better. The outer court was much, much bigger than they show here. Here they just look like they have a tiny little sidewalk area. But the outer court was, was spread way out. And we'll talk about how big it was. But the outer court was also called the court of the Gentiles. This is where Gentile proselytes to Judaism were allowed to come and worship God. But they could go no further into the temple. They could only stay in this outer court. And I was reading last night in uh, the preacher's sermon and uh, outline and sermon Bible, it's called. I was reading that and it said that actually they had a sentence of death. I thought, wow, that was pretty strong for any Gentile who tried to pass further into the temple. And I got to thinking, in this preacher's sermon and Bible outline or whatever it's called said that they thought that that was another reason for the Lord's anger in this whole scene we'll be looking at and I had never heard that before so I'll throw that out and let you think about that that they and those these were Gentiles 
who had converted to Judaism and believed in the, the true God, and they wouldn't let them pass any further at point of death. So that's something to think about. All right, so there was the outer court of the Gentiles. Then there was the inner court, which is this section right here, and it consisted of the court of women. Now, this was for Jewish women only. No Gentiles allowed, okay? The court of the women was for Jew- Jewish women only. Then there was the court of the men, which, of course, was for Jewish men only. And then there was the court of the priests, which was sort of in this section here. They call it here the court of Israel. And that was for Jewish priests only. And then we have, we have the outer court, the inner court, and back here we have what's known as the innermost court. And it consisted of two sections. There was the holy place in the front, and then behind that thick veil was what? The Holy of Holies, which um, only was entered one by one person one day of the year. And that was the high priest would go in there one day of the year, which was known as the Day of Atonement, or the Jews call it Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And um, it was also the place where the Shekinah glory of God had once rested above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it was in the outer court, or the court of the Gentiles, that the higher-ranking priests of the Sanhedrin, remember the ruling body of Israel, under the wicked misguidance of the two, the two co-reigning high priests, Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, that they had established some supposed conveniences for the thousands of Jew well, I could even say millions of Jewish and Gentile proselyte pilgrims who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Sadducean-controlled Sanhedrin. Now remember, what do Sadduceans believe? No resurrection, no supernatural, so they're out to get their Sadducee because they don't believe in any resurrection. They're out to get all they can, can all they get, so they're very materialistic. So they... They have no problem with what's going on here. But the Sadducean-controlled Sanhedrin had agreed to provide, of course, for a price, and thus for a nice profit to themselves, two things, sacrifices and shekels. I did that so you could remember S's. They, they, convenient for all the Passover pilgrims, they would provide sacrifices and shekels. But, as we will see, both of these operations... Both of these uh, supposed conveniences had done nothing but pollute the house of God. When Jesus and his men, remember he's only with six disciples now, when they arrived in Jerusalem and went to the temple, to the outer court of the temple, the Lord Jesus found almost a mafia kind of operation, a money-making operation occurring in what should have been a place of prayer and worship for Gentiles, for Gentile proselytes. Now, for centuries, it had been possible for Passover pilgrims, and this gives you somewhat of an idea of how many people went to the temple at this time of year. And think about the lines. You know, we complain about lines at Walmart. <laughs> they had to have lines to purchase their sacrificial animals. Then they would have to have a line to stand in to exchange their money. And then they'd have to stand in line to give their sacrificial animal to the priest to slaughter on the altar. I mean, just terrible lines. So I thought that picture was very good to show you that. But for centuries, it had been possible for these traveling Passover pilgrims coming into Jerusalem to purchase at very reasonable prices the necessary sacrificial animals from local Judean shepherds. 
you know, as they came in closer to Jerusalem, they could stop at one of the fields, like you remember Shepherd's Field outside of Bethlehem, and purchase a lamb, or if they were very poor, you know, stop at some um, place and, and purchase some doves or purchase an oxen if that's what they were going to do. But they could buy these things from local shepherds at very reasonable prices. And this aided them because, see, then they didn't have to carry those animals with them long distances. And so this was a good thing. But Annas and his cohorts had devised a way to make the Passover not only more profitable for the local animal sellers, but for themselves. They permitted the local animal um, shepherds and merchants to set up booths in the outer court of the temple, the temple of the court of the Gentiles. And this, you know, looked really good at first because they were, they were thinking, well, this would make it. Of course, they're really thinking of their own pockets, but they were justified it by saying this made it very convenient for the traveling pilgrims because they could purchase their, their sacrificial animals right there in the outer courtyard and then they wouldn't have to transport them very far to take them to the priest that, who would slaughter them on the altar. Now, the outer court was, and this gives you a much better idea of how huge it was. The outer court, you see this part here, um, was literally large enough for hundreds and hundreds of animals. And last night, as I was reading again that same Bible commentary, said that it was large enough for thousands of animals. So if I have hundreds in your books, correct that to thousands of animals, sheep, oxen, and dove, etc., to be brought in for sale. Arthur Pink, in his commentary, said that the outer court alone, this area here, was about 14 acres in size, which is comparable to 13 football fields. I asked the ladies how, yesterday, how many people and how many animals can you put on 13 football fields? And we didn't know, but we said a lot. <laughs> you can put a lot of people and animals. The entire area of the, in, the whole temple, you know, including the inner court and the innermost, the whole area was uh, 20 acres in size. So we're talking big here, all right? And this, you need to understand this to understand the magnitude of what the Lord did when he single-handedly chased everybody out. I mean, a lot of the old commentaries, like back in the 1800s, I don't know why nobody says it now, but back in those days they said this was one of the most amazing miracles that Jesus ever performed. Now, it's not categorized as a miracle. It's a work of Christ. But they say it's really a miracle <laughs> that single-handedly he cleansed this whole operation. Now, the rent. Now, you don't think Annas and his crowd let these merchants come in and set up booths for free, do you? No, of course not. They charged rent. They charged rent, and they also took a percentage of all sales. Whatever they sold, they got their cut. And that those two things resulted in, in several things. First of all, uh, these financial arrangements made by Annas and Caiaphas and all the cooperating priests of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, it uh, made them very wealthy. In fact, I've told you this before, this whole operation was known by the common people as Annas's Bazaar. And they, the religious leaders got very rich on this. Now, I don't think that the Pharisees were as involved. Maybe some were, but this was mostly the Sadducees, okay? Second, 
um, in the rent and, and the percentage of all sales that they got, this entire op, uh, this drove up the prices of the animals considerably because the merchants now had to consider their overhead. They had to pay rent for the booth, and they also had to give Annis and his crowd their cut. Plus, greed played a part. They knew that they could get more from the people themselves, so they drove up the prices. Uh, the sellers knew that they had the buyers at a great disadvantage because by the time the Passover pilgrims arrived in Jerusalem and went to uh, find a, you know, a, buy a lamb at the temple, they weren't about and st- stood in line to do so. How, who knows how long they had to stay in line. And they got there and found out the price. They weren't about to leave Jerusalem and go back into the Judean countryside to look for some lone little shepherd who might sell them a lamb or a dove at a reasonable price. So you see, the buyers knew that they had the sellers at an advantage. And this reminded me so much of, uh, like um, so many places, <laughs> uh, airport souvenir shops or airport food bars. I mean, they know you, they have you. If you just get off a flight and you're, you're real hungry or something, you've got to pay their prices. This is how it was. I found out from one commentator that five-cent doves were selling for $4. Now, what kind of a... Markup is that exorbitant? I mean, just ridiculous prices. And you can see that the the religious leaders had no compassion for the poor, did they? Because the poor were the ones that had to buy that doves. So it's just they they knew they had a monopoly going, and the people either paid their price or they didn't have the necessary sacrifice, unless they brought their sacrifices with them from their homes. And some of them live far away countries, but if they brought their own animal sacrifice with them. Annas thought of that, too. <laughs> right? Exactly. Annas and his cash-minded crowd had also devised a system to profit from those Passover pilgrims who brought their animal sacrifices with them. Their own priests, who were in on this whole deal, served as temple inspectors. Their job was to inspect any sacrifices brought into the temple from the outside, in other words, any that weren't purchased at the temple booths, and they were to make certain that these animals met the standards of the Old Testament law. But of course, they were hypocrites, and so they interpreted those Old Testament laws for their own profit. They really had double standards. What they would do, if a person brought in an animal, let's say a lamb, from their own home, the temple inspector, who they had to be priests, they would meticulously scrutinize that animal until they found some little tiny blemish or spot or mark. And they would look until they did. If they didn't, maybe they had an ink pen and they would make one. I don't know, but they were very, very corrupt. And very, very few home-brought sacrificial animals passed their inspection. So the people would be forced to go to the, the booth sellers and purchase their... And you know what? I'm sure that those animals weren't any better. And I even thought about... We, we decided this yesterday in the ladies' Bible study that probably they say, well, your, an, your lamb is no good. I'll give you two cents for it. And, of course, they didn't want it anymore. They couldn't use it, and they didn't want to carry it all the way back, so they'd sell it at a real cheap price. Then they probably took that lamb and sold it to one of the merchants, and then that merchant raised the price. I mean, just, they had a real nasty operation going on here. Let's see where, and so it's no wonder that the Lord called this whole operation, what? A house of merchandise in this cleansing. You know, three years from this point, 
he cleanses it again. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But the second time he refers to this operation because it just went right on happening. He called it a den of thieves, and that is exactly what it was. Then, scattered throughout the entire courtyard, money changers with their cash boxes were also supposedly conveniently provided for the Passover pilgrims. Now, this is not a really accurate picture up here, of, but that was the only picture I could find with people dealing with money. But they, they would set up tables. Of course, they had to pay rent for those tables as well. And they would have little cash boxes sitting on the tables, not over here in, in buckets like that. Um, and, and they were everywhere. You see, the numerous foreign Jews and the Gentile proselytes to Judaism who flooded the city for this annual feast would generally possess only their local foreign currency, their own money. And the Jewish religious leaders had declared that all foreign money was heathen and it was unclean because coins from other countries generally had an image of Caesar engraved on them or some other false deity. And, you know, Caesar was worshipped as a god. So these greedy religious rulers had again found another way to profit from their own interpretation of God's commandments. God's second commandment says what? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. So Annas and the Sanhedrin made it their own mandatory law that all foreign currency had to be exchanged for Jewish shekels. The animal sellers were not allowed to, they weren't permitted to accept any foreign currency. So even though, and this is the contradiction, even though most Jewish people regularly used Roman money, yet at the time of these feasts they were not allowed to. So money changers were available in abundance in the temple courtyard, and of course they charged an outrageous exchange fee which, as with the prices of the sacrificial animals, was, was greatly inflated so as to include not only the money that they had to pay in rent to put their table up, but the, the payoff to the temple priests for permitting them that space. The other part of their inflated exchange came from, again, their own greed, man's own greed. So coming and going, the people, the common people, were being cheated, and they knew it, but there was really little they could do about it. Furthermore, every Jewish person... Every Jewish, Jewish person, no matter where they lived in the world, had to pay an annual temple tax of half a shekel. It wasn't very much, but when you think of millions of Jews all over the world back then, they all had to pay uh, a half a Jewish shekel for the upkeep maintenance of the temple. And that was by God's command in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16. Again, however, when that person went to exchange their foreign currency, if they lived outside the country, for a shekel, again, they were ripped off in the exchange. So the outer courtyard, which was supposed to have been a place for the prayers and the worship of Gentile proselytes to Judaism, had instead now uh, an atmosphere of commercialism and commotion, not worship and prayer. Can you just imagine all the commotion going on? I mean, it smelled like a barnyard. Can you imagine thousands of animals? And they're, they're all, in, uh, I mean, just nasty. They, they, they're waste. Just the animal smells alone, and then all that waste. And they probably had to bring food for them somewhere. And it just, it smelled like a barnyard. It sounded like a cattle market. 
And uh, it was the scene of many greedy swindlers during this Passover, uh, during the Passover feast and the feast that followed. The poor were shamefully being cheated and worship of God was greatly hindered. God and the things of God were treated most irreverently by those who were only interested in making a, a profit from his name and from the things of God, which is called usury, by the way, and it is a sin. Now, although there were probably many people who did not approve of what was going on and many people who were very angry about what was going on, yet there was no one bold enough to do anything about it. Now, I did think about one very bold man named who, do you think? John the Baptist. I think John the Baptist probably would have been willing to do something about it, but he was down in Bethabara, he was down near the Dead Sea, and secondly, this was not his calling. The Lord did not call him to go and cleanse the temple. There was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled, and it had to be fulfilled by the Messiah, not by the herald of the Messiah. But other than John the Baptist, there was no man bold enough to single-handedly take on the religious establishment and this monopoly, profit-making monopoly that they had going on. And if somebody had been bold enough to try to attempt this, immediately what would have happened? He would have been arrested. The temple police would have, they would have sent out the temple police, and he would have been put in a dark dungeon somewhere. However, one particular Passover season was quite different. A young man, about 30 years of age, a former carpenter from a despised little Galilean village called Nazareth, accompanied by a bedraggled group of six men, most of them were just fishermen, came suddenly to the temple, took one sweeping look at the situation, and set about to make himself a scourge of cords. And notice it says in verse 15, small cords. I mean, he didn't make some big, giant whip. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures with this huge whip that he's got. It was just a small whip uh, made out of small cords. Where do you think he got the cords? Right, exactly. I imagine they were laying all over the place from, you know, kind of like leashes that they would use to bring in the oxen or the the larger lambs, the rams or something like that, or even just the lambs. But he picked up some of these small cords and he made himself a scourge. And then taking it up, he began to single-handedly whip clean the temple of God from all the leaven which had been accumulating there for years. The Lord Jesus, you see, will not tolerate an unholy mixture of worldly things with spiritual things. He hates that. We see that by his behavior here. So with an authority that had never been seen in the eyes and in the countenance and in the strength or in the manner of any other man, Jesus Christ fired up his his small whip and the entire crowd, this is the miraculous part of it, it says in verse 15, all, all, and that, I looked that up, it's a Greek word, panda, which means all. <laughs> it means everybody, everything, every animal. So all of the money changers, all of the materialistic booth merchants with their overpriced sheep and oxen and doves and uh, trinkets. Don't you know they also probably had souvenirs for sale? <laughs> I can imagine that they did all kinds of little trinkets. Buy yourself a small replica of the temple for only (laughs) $29,000. 
And uh, also, again, that book I read last night said that they also sold in the outer courtyard things like incense and uh, uh, oil and meal and salt and wine, which I hadn't thought about. But all these things were for sale. If you've ever been to the Middle East, I've been to Israel, and I remember just walking down some of the streets, and the merchants are out there in the streets shouting at you as you walk by. You don't even have to go to the Middle East. You can go to South America, some other country. That's what they do to get your attention, get you to, in their shop to buy their thing. Everybody's shouting and screaming at you. I mean, you just And you have to keep looking straight ahead because if you give any of them a, a little bit of a come on, like maybe I am interested, boy, they just go after you, practically grab you in there. So that's the kind of situation that was going on. But here it says that they all fled in fear before him, before him. And then specifically, he didn't speak to any of those people he was chasing out except the dove sellers. He specifically talked to them, and he gave them a commandment. He said, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Now, no one... No one can rightly accuse. That's, that's probably a really good picture of the whip right there. And the only reason I put that picture up is because uh, I'll talk about the fact that Jesus didn't whip the people, okay, or the animals. But uh, the reason I put that up is because we're going to be talking about the cages there. Um, no one can rightly accuse the Lord Jesus of being irrational in his anger. He did not act out of control, as people so often do when they lose their temper. The, the Lord Jesus did not go out of control when he was angry. And this is shown to us by his words to the dove keepers. You see, the doves were kept in these small crate-like kind of cages. And so with rational control, the Lord told the dove sellers to pick up, you know, to take those creatures out of the temple. He didn't want to, well, he didn't rant and rave and kick them, you know, kick them over. He did throw over the money changers' tables, but he didn't kick the cages that the doves were in. Why? Right, he didn't want to harm those innocent creatures. And uh, furthermore, I think he was also, he was so in control in his anger, his righteous indignation over evil, which was what it really was, was that uh, he didn't even want to deprive the merchants of their rightful merchandise. So he just said, you know, pick them up and take them out of there. So he shows us that it is possible to have righteous indignation against sin and evil without losing control. There's this, there was this article in uh, the Daily Bread that talked about this. It says, anger is an appropriate motivation, but it needs intelligent programming. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Reading John 2:13 to 22, which is our passage for today, one might think that Jesus lost his temper. Quite the contrary. His anger sprang from a pure heart and passed through a clear-thinking brain. It wasn't marked by lack of self-control or blind rage. His whip of cords was but another form of the scepter held by the king of the universe. Desecration of God's house and exploitation of the poor rightly inflamed his passion. And it goes on, but at the bottom it says, it's not a sin to get angry when you get angry at sin. The Lord's words to the dove sellers, I'm going to finish with this, show us several things. Um, not only that the Lord was really in control here and that I don't, it, it doesn't say so in the scripture, but I, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't imagine that he hurt anybody. I think it was just the ferocity on his countenance and the power and the authority about his person that scared people. I don't think he went around whipping animals and whipping people. I don't, I, it just, that would, 
that would be contrary to his person. But uh, um, so it tells us he didn't lose his, his anger, but it also gives us a very bold statement claim that he made here to his to who he was because he referred to the temple as his father's house and no man. I don't care who he was. David, Solomon, Moses, no man had ever dared to call the temple of God Almighty his father's house. That, to the Jews, was an unequivocal equivocal claim to being the Son of God. In other words, to being divine, to being deity. However, did Christ have the prerogative, the right, to call the temple his father's house? Absolutely, because he is indeed the Son of God. Furthermore... He made it possible for believers in him who become the sons of God, with a small s, to also call God our Father. Our Father, which art in heaven. We have an awesome privilege to call God our Father because he is. Um, now, this is something that I wanted to read to you that you don't have in your notes that I found in Dr. Uh, not Dr. He's not a doctor, but his name is John Butler. He's been a pastor for over 40 years in some church out in Oklahoma or somewhere. But anyway, he writes wonderful commentaries, and uh, he's still alive today. But he says that he just makes this comment. I'm just going to read it, and you can take it and go do with it what, what you want. I hope you will do positive things with it. But here's what it says. Quote, the House of Merchandise Denunciation can certainly be made about many of our churches, for they reflect the same problem. When you go to these churches, you are greeted with a carnival atmosphere instead of a spiritual atmosphere. Games, contests, and entertainment, all done, of course, under the guise of increasing attendance, have killed the spiritual atmosphere of the church. Now, many say that these carnal things get people into the church who otherwise would not come, and that souls are saved as a result. However, the end does not justify the means. Saying that the church is doing this to get souls saved does not sanctify the church. The temple officials could also claim that they were bringing in the animals and the money changers to help meet a worship need. But it only made the temple corrupt. The promotional programs at many churches do the same thing. I don't care what the end is. It doesn't justify the means when the church brings in the world to attract the world. And that's all I'll say about that. The thinking that believers should deal lovingly and leniently with evil is a satanic lie. And it also indicates really a lack of love toward holiness and towards righteousness. And uh, I could go on and on about that, but I won't be able to. Now, the timing of this. You know, whenever the Lord does something, he does it in the right time. He does it in the perfect time. This was absolutely the perfect time for him to cleanse the temple for a number of reasons, but it was very significant that he did cleanse it at the time of the Passover feast uh, because what it shows us is that he was ridding his father's house of the leaven of unrighteousness which had accumulated there over the centuries. Now, a lot of people have wondered why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospel accounts, put the cleansing of the temple at the end of the Lord's ministry— Actually, it was performed on Monday of the Passion Week. You know, Jesus died on Friday. On Monday, he cleansed the temple, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Bible critics will say, well, the Bible's inconsistent because John tells us it occurred at the beginning of his ministry, right? He's just begun his public ministry. The only thing he's done really so far is turn water into wine, and then he goes to Jerusalem, and uh, he cleanses the temple. And so they say there's a contradiction in this account. There were two cleansings. 
He cleansed him at the beginning, cleansed at the beginning of his ministry, and he cleansed it again three years later at the time of Passover, at the end of his ministry. Obviously, as soon as he cleansed it, they went right back in there. Um, I don't think they waited three years to bring this operation back in. They probably didn't even wait three days before they brought it right back in. And so by the time the Lord leaves the temple for the last time in his public ministry, when he leaves the temple, in his final public sermon, he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. See, it was no longer his father's house. He turned it over to them. He said, Your house. It could have been filled again with the presence of, of Christ. And whenever he was in it, it was filled with the presence of God. Because in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. But when he left it, it was indeed left desolate. And it has been ever since. Of course, it doesn't even exist today. The people present on the day that Jesus, in his righteous and holy indignation, cleansed the temple, they actually witnessed the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. And we've talked about this prophecy before. We're going to talk about it more now in its fullness. If you go over to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, if you look at Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4, they witness the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. If you remember, verse 3, 1 begins by speaking of the herald of the Messiah. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. We know now that that was fulfilled by John the Baptist. And then it continues, Malachi 3.1 continues to say that, uh, to warn Israel that when she sees this herald, when he comes and he begins to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, she should get ready. Why? Because shortly after that, the Messiah himself would appear. How would he appear? He would suddenly come to his temple. And when he did, everybody would know that he had been there. Do you think everybody knew? Yes, Jews from all over the world knew that the Messiah had been to the temple that day. They, I mean, there were two and a half million people in Jerusalem at that time. And word spread after that, too, to all the other people who weren't there. Everybody knew that this man, Jesus, had been to the temple. And then God, through Malachi in verses 2 and 3, chapter 3, goes on to further state that the Messiah, when he came suddenly to his temple, would do what? He would refine and purify it, as well as the sons of Levi. Who were they? The priests, the Levitical priesthood. So this prophecy, that's why John the Baptist couldn't go in and cleanse the temple. This prophecy had to be fulfilled by none other than the Messiah Actually, Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4, if you want to write in your Bible, you can put down that that is what's called a dual fulfillment prophecy. It hasn't been completely fulfilled, but it will be at the time of the Lord's second coming. You see, at the time of his second coming, the sons of Levi will truly have been refined and purified through the fiery furnace of the tribulation period and the temple itself which will be rebuilt you know there will be a temple in jerusalem at the time of the lord's second coming the temple itself will be purified by the very presence of christ himself so it will be completely fulfilled at the time of the second coming all right you can go back to john another event which testifies to us that jesus is the son of god and the messiah is found in the response of the lord's disciples to this abrupt activity in the temple what was their response well they remembered that um, David had written in Psalm 69.9, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. 
Now, this speaks very well of the disciples. I mean, here they were essentially uneducated Galileans, most of them fishermen, and they were perceived as being uneducated, at least by the sophisticated Judeans of Jerusalem. But yet they had this, uh, apparently, this amazing knowledge of the Scripture. Remember, they didn't have their own personal copies of the Old Testament to carry around with them and study. So they had obviously been to the synagogue many times and um, maybe took notes while the rabbi was uh, teaching. But they, they, this was recalled to their minds, Psalm 69.9. Now, the Jewish religious rulers probably thought of this as well. They probably did. But see, their unbelief was willful. I mean, they certainly knew the scriptures better than the Galilean fishermen. Psalm 69, they knew very well. Psalm 69, all the Jews understood to be messianic. Read it at home when you, you know, sometime this week. They understood it, that it was speaking of the Messiah, that it wasn't just David speaking. Of course, David had a great zeal for the house of God, didn't he? I mean, he had a deep desire to build a house for God. But he couldn't because he had bloody hands. But his, his son Solomon was uh, allowed to build the temple. But David also danced in front of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. So he had a real zeal for the things of God. But this really speaks well of the, um, of, of the disciples that they thought of this psalm. And they realized that Jesus' indignation over the, the, the disrespect and the mistreatment of God's house was indeed a fulfillment of this second prophecy, Psalm 69.9. And that's another fulfillment. That's fulfillment number 12 in our Life of Christ study. Okay, let's look quickly, verses 18 to 22, the temple's destruction and Christ's power of resurrection. Verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us? Seeing that thou doest these things, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So it wasn't very long after the Lord cleansed the temple that this delegation of Jewish authorities appeared before him. And their spokesman asked them, asked Jesus to give them a sign to prove that he had the authority to do what he had just done. Now, isn't that incredible? They asked for a sign. You know what? They had just had a lot of signs. I think I asked you for four in your notes, but I thought of five. Okay, first of all, he had just fulfilled Malachi 3.1. He had come suddenly to his temple in order to purify and refine it and the sons of Levi. And they knew. Do you think they didn't know that what was going on in there needed to be purified? They knew it was a corruption. I mean, they, they weren't that dumb. They, they knew this was for their own pocketbooks or wallets. I should say they were men. They didn't have pocketbooks. <laughs> What do you think was wrong with this sign request of the Jews? That's the main thing. Well, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. We'll talk about signs in a minute. But they had just had these signs. The Malachi 3.1 prophecy, the um, Psalm 69.9 prophecy, which they knew was messianic, and that it said that the Messiah would have a zeal for the house of God. Uh, they also knew that John the Baptist had proclaimed to be the forerunner of the Messiah. They, weren't, they even had sent a delegation down there to, to check him out. They knew what he was claiming. 
They may even have gotten word that he had pointed to this uh, one man and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. But just even knowing that John claimed to be the forerunner of the Messiah, they should have been gathered in the temple every day waiting for the next part of Malachi 3 to be fulfilled. Because now that the forerunner was here, they should be waiting for the Messiah to come suddenly to his temple to cleanse it. They should have been. And they studied, I mean, day and night these guys studied the scriptures. That's what they prided themselves on. So they weren't really dumb about these things. It was willful ignorance, willful unbelief. Also, think of this sign. Who in the world could have done what Jesus did? They asked him for a sign for authority? I mean, no one ever had authority like that to cleanse, to, to cleanse the temple of all those animals and all those uh, commercialists, <laughs> all the money changers and all the animal sellers. Everyone fled from his presence. And he didn't hurt anybody. It was just something about him. And they fled. That speaks of authority right there, that he took on single-handedly the entire religious hierarchy of Israel and didn't bat an eye about doing it. Furthermore, what did he call the temple? His father's house. That was a clear claim to being deity. So that he had given them actually five signs. Do you know who it is that repeatedly asks for signs and miracles? Usually it is those, yeah, Jews. (laughs) Jews um, and Greeks seek for what? Wisdom. Jews seek for signs. But usually it's those who do not believe. You see, unbelief requires signs. Unbelief wants miracles. I remember my grandmother, bless her heart, she got saved one week before she died. Actually, that whole last week she was in a coma, so she got saved one day before she went into a coma. But she was always asking me when I witnessed to her, if God would just give me a sign, then I would believe. Unbelief asks for signs and miracles. But there's a problem with that because they never can get enough. I mean, Jesus did miracle after miracle after miracle, performed sign after sign. Uh, His words were, no man ever spake like he spoke. He had wisdom, unbelievable wisdom because he's God. And these same religious leaders personally witnessed all these things, many, many of these things, and indirectly heard about all of them. Think about the raising of Lazarus after he had been in the tomb for four days. Amazing things. And, and so they had as, as many signs and miracles as anybody could ever want. And what did they conclude? They concluded that he did these things in the power of Satan. So does faith come by seeing, you know. The world says, show me, seeing is believing. But God doesn't work like that. God says, no, you believe first, and then I'll show you all the miracles you could ever ask for. I mean, you know, signs. This is where they are, is in this book, really. Signs and miracles are used by God to strengthen faith, not to persuade unbelief. You see, the disciples believed Jesus' words first, who he said he was. And then he showed them the miracles to strengthen their faith, the faith they already had. You know, then he changed water into wine, and then he... He cleansed the temple, and the rest of his three and a half years, he continues to to show them things so that their faith would be strengthened. But the Lord answered the Jews' request for a sign, but not in the way they would have expected. Now, what kind of sign do you think the Jews would have liked to have had? I'll tell you what they would have liked to have had. Same thing Satan tried to get him to do. They would have said, well, let's see. Show us a sign. Why don't you turn these stones here into bread? 
Or, oh, we got a great idea. Why don't you go up to the pinnacle of the temple here and jump, and we'll see if God sends angels to rescue you. Then we'll believe in you. Same kind of thing Satan would have asked for. But he gave them a sign. Well, he didn't give it to them in the way they they expected. He gave them a sign through words. He gave them a prophecy. And this was actually a prophecy of the ultimate sign that he would give not only Israel but the whole world. It was the prophecy of his death and resurrection. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. It's interesting, I don't know if this is in your notes or not, but the very first sign that the Lord ever gave was this one about his death and resurrection. And the last sign that he would ever give to Israel as a nation, to the religious rulers, was the same sign. But he he used a different metaphor. He said, as Jonah was three days in the belly, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. So first sign and last sign, same thing, because they were the ultimate sign. The ultimate sign to prove that he has authority not only to cleanse the temple, but to do anything he wants to do is that he had power over death. If you have power over death in the grave, that means you're God, (laughs) and you can do whatever you want. Now, uh, oof. I don't know if I should say this or not, but I want to get it on the tape. But there are two words in the Greek that we don't see in the English in his, his words there where he says, destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. One that's significant is, uh, oops, that's the wrong picture, is the word temple. That's not the same word that is found over in verse 14 where it speaks of the physical building, the temple. You know, that actually existed there, Herod's temple. That's a different Greek word, but in verse 19, the word that Jesus uses for temple is N-A-O-S, naos. And it was it literally referred to the innermost sanctuary which housed the holy of holies. You see, the naos was the place where God met with man. What the Jewish delegation and the six disciples didn't understand was that Jesus was referring to his own body as the temple of God. Christ's human body, you see, was where God himself lived with man for 33 and a half years. It was the naos. Also, it's important to understand that the word he used, the Greek verb he used for raise, was uh, literally the word um, rise from sleep. Now, can a building, a literal temple, be risen from sleep? No. So, you know, if they had picked up on the exact words that he was saying there, they might have gotten it, but they didn't. Um, also, if you notice this, his, his first, in his first confrontation with the Jewish authorities of Israel, the religious leaders, he actually foretold of his death at their hands. Because what's implied in his statement here is you, the you is implied. It's, I don't know, I can't remember what they call it. It's an implied subject. But you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. So he was really predicting that his death would be at their hands. They did destroy his temple, or at least they tried to. Three days later, he came out of the grave. But in destroying his temple, you know what they also destroyed? They destroyed the physical temple. They destroyed, they were the, the reason that their own temple. If they had accepted him, he would have taken up residence in the physical temple right then and there, cleansed it and everything. And it wouldn't have to have been destroyed in 70 A.D., shortly after the Lord Jesus' time. Now, if the Jews wanted a sign, they certainly got one. But, of course, as I said, they totally missed it. They did not pick up on the spiritual significance of his words. 
But they understood them merely, and they do this over and over again. Everything he says, they understand it only from a physical level. They don't go that deeper level down to see what he's really saying spiritually. And so in response to this wonderful statement, essentially what they say is, What? Have you lost your mind? 18,000 workmen have assisted in building this magnificent temple uh, for some 46 years now, ever since 20 B.C., now, they didn't say B.C. Wouldn't that have shocked them <laughs> to know that the one they were talking to was going to change a calendar? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I told you it took them a total of how many years? Altogether, it was something like 80 years because it's not even complete when they're talking. They're still working on it. But they said, so far, 46 years. And now you're saying that we would even think of destroying it to begin with. You know, we would never destroy this temple. We love this temple. And that if we did... You alone, by your power, could raise it back again in only three days? I mean, that's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. That's what they were saying. I want to get to the best part. If you have to leave, I know you have to leave, but this, I always save the best for last. Um, this lesson has a special application to believers of the church age, you and I, because we are currently known as the temples of God. And you know when it says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, that we are the temples of God, it uses the word naos. Because we are, you know, just like the temple in uh, Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, when God did dwell in the naos, God, if you're saved, God, the Holy Spirit, does dwell in you. So we are where God now dwells with man. You know, it's not this building which is the house of God. This is just a meeting place. We are the house of God. All right, now like the temple in Jerusalem... The Christian's temple, our temple, our body, is also triune. Since God himself is triune, you know, being three persons in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and since man was made in the image of God, we too are triune. If we're made in God's image, you would expect us to also be triune. Three persons in one, or three in one. Not three persons, but three in one. And we are. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we consist of body, soul, and spirit. Now, so... The comparison, our physical bodies, our outer shell, may be compared to the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. Our souls, which contain the seat of our consciences, our thoughts, our wills, our emotion, and our imagination, our souls can be compared to the inner court of the temple, and our spirits, which are the, the part of us most like God, since God is spirit, correspond to the innermost court where the Holy of Holies is located. That's the place where God dwelt with, uh, with man. Now, tragically, because most people will not place their faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning death for their sins, their most sacred chamber, the spirit chamber, which contains such a wonderful capacity for God, you know, to inwardly dwell, this spirit part of most people, unbelievers, is left vacant, so that, therefore, it is left uh, open to occupancy by other tenants, dark tenants, which are known as evil spirits. Or it is just left to total neglect. You know, when people say that they, they, before they were saved, they just felt like there was a void inside of them. Well, there was, because the spirit chamber was vacant, de- left desolate. It should be f- filled with God's presence. However, for those of us who are true born-again Christians, God the Holy Spirit, as I said, takes up residence in the innermost court of our spirit. And then 
the soul, our soul, the inner court, which holds the seat of the conscience and the will, etc., can determine to do one of two things. It can either permit itself to be more strongly influenced by the body, the outer court, and thus be known as a carnal Christian. You know, if our soul is more influenced by the flesh, we're known as a carnal Christian. Or our soul can determine to yield itself to the spirit, the innermost court, and become increasingly spiritual. The light then of the most holy place the one who is indwelling us, will shine forth with ever-growing intensity until it passes outward, you know, outward, affecting every part of our temple, our emotions, our thoughts, our attitudes, and, and even our actions. And that person will begin to glow with Christ's likeness so that others will see God shining in him. That's what Christ said when he said, you know, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your father. But when when Christ came to the temple, the physical temple for the first time in his public ministry and he saw that the Jews had allowed the intrusion of the world to influence the outer court, uh, he was upset and had to clean it. Now you see outside of the outer court is what? The world. And what the Jews had allowed was for the world to come in to the outer court. And, and they were carnal. Actually, they had allowed it to, to even penetrate the whole thing. And uh, that's what can happen to us. We can allow the same intrusion of the world to influence our outer court, our flesh. We can allow money. We can allow materialism, those things known as mammon. We can allow pleasure, leisure, recreation, success, or even laziness to crowd God, God out of our lives so that we, too, have desecrated temples. And when we allow our temples to become cluttered and desecrated with things that show an irreverence for God, beware. (laughs) Because whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So when we have a desecrated temple, the Lord may come suddenly to cleanse out the leaven that we have allowed to accumulate. And he might do it with a scourge of loss. He may do it with a a whip of uh, pain. I'm just suggesting some things that he uses. Um, What else have I got here? A a cord of illness, conviction of sin, a scourge of of bitter disappointment, perhaps. But we can, and and you can, and you can rest assured that he'll do it with zeal, (laughs) with fervency, with authority, and with power. But the thing you can take comfort in is that he's doing it for our own ultimate good. Let's go on quickly because of time to the last part. The temporary disciples and Christ's perception of reality. So I'm behind here. Look, just real quickly, because we did talk about this a week or two ago. Starting in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, what had taken place in the temple created a good deal of speculation and interest in the city, uh, which was now filled, you know, with all these Jewish pilgrims from everywhere. And I'm sure they carried this story back to their hometowns and told everybody about this amazing man who had cleansed the temple single-handedly. And John tells us that many believed in his name. But the question is, why did they believe? 
Well, he goes on to say they believed when they saw the miracles, which he did. And apparently after this, he went through Jerusalem and did a lot of miracles, probably healings and things like that, which are not recorded for us. But they believed in his name because of the miracles and faith that rests itself on miracles is not sturdy, satisfactory, or substantial faith. This kind of faith is always demanding more. We know this was not real believing faith because then in verse 24 it tells us that Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew them. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knew their hearts and he knew that their faith was not real faith. And there's a big difference, I've told you before, between believing and receiving. Look back at John 1.12. Just flip your Bible over a minute. This difference is shown to us in John 1.12. It says, but as many as, what? Received him. To them he did commit himself. To them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And notice that these who received Christ, he did, did commit himself to. And they became the sons of God. He gave them power to become the sons of God. And notice it also says in that same verse that they believed on his name. And if you go back to what we just read in 23, 223, it says that they only believed in his name. They did not put the full weight of their faith and trust on him. They only believed in him because of what they had seen with their eyes. And in Hebrews 11, 1, it tells us that true faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The sad thing today and down through the ages has been that though there are many who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world, many believe that, believe in that, yet they have never received him by inviting him to be the Lord of their lives. And I like to use this little acrostic. I hope you can make some sense out of it. It's also on your notes. Acrostic of the word faith, F-A-I-T-H, to demonstrate this vital difference between believing and receiving, between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And then I'll close with this. This is faith that saves. First of all, F stands for the facts about Christ. A lot of people know the facts about Christ, about his birth, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. They know all those facts. And many agree with those facts. They believe in those facts. But so far, F and A are still up here. This is still head knowledge. I know those facts. I believe in those facts. But even the devils get this far, it tells us in James. The devils believe and tremble. They know the facts, and they believe in the facts. But the third step, I, the letter I, this is the key. This is where we go from the believing stage to the receiving stage, because the I stands for inviting. This is when we actually invite Christ to be a part of us. We acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge the fact that we need a Savior. We acknowledge the fact that he is Lord, and we want him to be the Lord of our lives. We submit our will to his will for us. 
and we internalize those facts that we've agreed with. So this is the receiving. This is when it moves, when faith moves from up here, down here to the heart. It goes from the head to the heart. And then T is trust, a total turnover to him. We totally turn our lives over to him. We put the full weight of our belief on him. We trust on him. And then H is that we have that hope in heaven. And that's the, the hope of the Bible is not a maybe kind of a hope. You know, I hear, hear so many people say, well, I hope I get to heaven. You don't have to hope. That's not the kind of hope the Bible talks about. It's a sure hope that you will spend eternity in heaven with our Lord.